this is Jake again. I'm trying something new this time by issuing some bonus content that didn't quite fit into episode 35, the interview with Jonah Kessel, a visual journalist and director of cinematography at the New York Times. The episode itself focuses on Jonah's life story and one big story he's done. But if you want more about the nitty gritty of how his job at the New York Times works, you'll find more in this extra 30 minutes from our conversation. Seeing as this is something new, let me know on Twitter or email me at foreignpod at gmail.com if you have thoughts about it. And if you're listening to this before the episode itself and want to hear more, definitely check out the full interview with Jonah. So here we go. When's the last time you went out to do a story to shoot something? So it was actually really recently. I hadn't been out the entire pandemic, although that's not to say I haven't been shooting because I have done like a fair bit of shooting in my house for a variety of things. But I did go out on my first assignment since the pandemic started about two weeks ago, and it was a very controlled environment. I was at Princeton University and I was filming part of a science experiment. And it was a little bit of a weird thing because some people reached out about, hey, you're interested in covering this thing. We know you're interested in this topic. And then it almost became like, oh yeah, you're doing that? Well, here's a really cool way to do it. And then they wanted to hear my ideas about how to accomplish filming something actually, not in the visible light space. The goal of this experiment was to film carbon dioxide, Mm -hmm. which we should all know is invisible. Not necessarily, not necessarily, but uh, there's ways to visualize it. And so I was like, well, here's how I would do it. Here's how we could make some really cool visuals. And so I started kind of working with some researchers at Princeton and from the University of Montpellier in France. And so I got out for two days in a very controlled environment because we were filming opera singers in infrared. But the way I had it set up is I could go into this space in advance, set up four different cameras, and then they were all cabled out to a different room. And I was operating them not even in the same room as the person singing. And so, yeah, it was like a kind of a remote thing, but I was on location. And the singers themselves had to get tested before coming in. So it was a very small group of people, just one doctor or PhD student, myself, and a couple performers from the Met Opera, the Met Orchestra. Cool. Yeah. When I imagine with cases down, this is baby steps back. This was very controlled. These remote shoots are very interesting. I have a friend who was shooting a commercial with people, I think, in Dubai, but he was in LA and like trying to explain to people move like, you know, five steps to your left, five steps to your right. Like it Uh it sounded a bit nuts. Um, Yeah, people do manage and it's super common now. I mean, even since the beginning of pandemic, I see a lot of new technology for remote shooting. And like what I was doing a couple weeks ago at Princeton, that was like cables. That was like not even wireless. But for example, I have wireless devices that I can put on a video journalist camera, and then I can watch what they're doing through my Apple TV in real time. (laughs) So from a director standpoint, you know, it might be that you're talking to a camera person or a cinematographer. It might be that you're talking to a subject, but I think the world has come a long way in the last, just the last few years. In terms of what we can do wirelessly, we've been experimenting a lot with 5G technology at the times, and some of the experiments we've been running have been including like real-time editing. I remember last year at the Iowa State Fair, I had a camera person at the fair filming, and we were transmitting that live signal back to New York, and we were editing it as he was shooting it. And so if you're familiar with what a video editing timeline looks like, we're in Premiere. And as he's shooting, the file is growing on the timeline. It's not that the file's coming in and then we're putting it into a program. It's like literally it's fluid. And so by the time the person's done finishing shooting that day, we already have a cut. 
Now, this was an experiment to see if we could do it in a real news environment for breaking news, and we chose a less important assignment to experiment on. But the wireless game is certainly miles ahead of where it was years ago. That's pretty cool. And this was the first time you went out. So I guess in the previous, gosh, I don't know, six months, was it? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe a little bit less. How were you guys producing video or because you're the director of photography, other people are going out and shooting it or how did that all work or did production just go way down the amount of stuff? So I actually think our amount of production went up, which is kind of funny. And so, yes, I manage a staff of cinematographers of like specialized video journalists. We're a bit different than the rest of the team, the video team at the times in that we're all multi-skilled. We shoot, we edit, we write. We have a different type of skill set, but our primary function is almost that of like a creative director on location. So I have these cinematographers that work for me and in normal times I do go out, but it's mostly specialized stuff at this point. I don't go out every day or even that often. So I have a staff and they have been shooting the entire time through the pandemic. And on top of that, we've done a lot, a lot of remote shoots where we're asking subjects to share their lives with us via their phones. And I I think you kind of have to look at the pandemic, at least coverage-wise for me, pre-George Floyd and post-George Floyd. Pre-George Floyd, we were in the hospitals a lot shooting. They were logistically super complicated things. And especially at the beginning, if you remember when people, I mean, it's not that we know everything about coronavirus now, but at the beginning we knew even less. And so we were being very cautious, but at the same time, our commitment to the news story was like tenacious. Like we wanted to be out there. We wanted to do it. And so my role in this point in life is not necessarily to be the guy in the hospital. Sometimes it is, but more of the time than not, it's more strategic. And looking at our general coverage from the video department at the New York Times, like what are we covering? How are we covering it? What is the best way to tell this story? Who are the best people to tell this story? And oftentimes a big part of my job is also logistics. Like how do we do it? How do we get into the hospital? How do we get the cinematographer in there safely? Who can be in there with them? And that's everything from like, can we put a lav mic on a doctor while they're working? Is that safe? To, okay, if we can't do that, can we get a sound op in there? Is there another person? Is it possible to crew up here and have a bigger footprint that's safer? Or I guess a big part of our equation that shifted is how much we've done outdoors, shifting so much of our operation to be shooting interviews outdoors, which is something we generally avoid unless there's an editorial or creative reason to do it outdoors. Outdoor interviews provide a lot of complications for us. There's sound considerations. There's changing light. This is a much more difficult, less controlled situation. So I don't have like the numbers in front of me, but since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been just all over the world shooting. I would say that we've ramped up our freelance game more than we had maybe in the past couple of years because we were trying to travel less. And in some cases, we can't travel because borders are closed. So we've been using a pretty wide network of freelancers. And then if I look at the second half of the pandemic, I don't know if these halves are correct, but at least mentally, the post-George Floyd, that's when the news environment just really, you know, we were already in overdrive from four years of you know, the political situation in the United States. But then since George Floyd, it felt like it went, I don't know what's past overdrive, hyperspeed, ludicrous (laughs) speed. (laughs) It kind of was this big push. And so we've been doing a lot of breaking news, a lot of protest coverage. And then these things start to converge. How do we stay safe from coronavirus and cover protests and stay safe from police and dangerous situations, hazardous shooting environments? And like still photographers, cinematographers, we have to be there. And often we want to be close. 
there's things we do to mitigate risk and to do things safely, but we have been operating all over this country covering, you know, a reckoning of a story. It's just been like a crazy period. Yeah, wow. So I have a few different staff members and freelancer stringers who are working for me all the time. And one of my staffers, her name is Yusra Al-Huli, and she has been in so many dangerous situations through the pandemic. Everything from being in hospitals and ERs to she did this story on like EMT workers and was going like literally riding in ambulances for weeks on end and going into people's apartments who had COVID and like all the dangerous situations you could possibly think of. And it's September 17th today. And she not only never got COVID, but she also doesn't have antibodies and she gets tested like every week. And it's just been phenomenal that I think if you do take the right safety precautions and I I don't know, you know, our security apparatus has, I guess, beefed up significantly over my life at the times, but like in the last two years, three years, our security apparatus has grown and grown. And with coronavirus, it's been, they're pretty much part of every assignment that we're talking to security personnel and maybe it's PPE for COVID and maybe it's PPE for a riot, or maybe it's having security personnel with us on the ground because we have intel that people want to hurt New York Times reporters or whatever it is. So I've just been impressed, at least on the COVID side, that the PPE for user has been flawless. Yeah, well, that's good. Just in Latin America, I mean, not to perpetuate stereotypes, but yeah, people just won't stay away from you. Like they have no concept of what one to two meters away is and everybody will walk up to you. Everybody will kind of fidget with their mask, you Mm -hmm. know, out in the middle of nowhere. They just won't wear it. If you're a Bolsonaro supporter, you might just not wear it. (laughs) And so that might have something to do with it too. It probably does. Because I think that same thing goes on here as well to some degree. Maybe not like the appropriate distance a person should stand away from another person, but certainly with masks. Like the politicization of masks is a unfortunate topic in this country. Right. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask just to understand, you said your team's a little bit different than the video team as a whole. Like in what situation would you or one of your people be sent in? In what situation would a normal videographer be sent in? So there's a couple of things. So first of all, my team shoots all the video for the New York Times. And that does include freelancers though. So there's like a wide network of freelancers we use. It's not just staffers. And so we shoot everything. The reason why we're different, I think is two things. One is that our skill sets are like, we're not cameraman and camera woman. I despise those words. I shouldn't despise them, but I do. Like we consider ourselves journalists first and we are maybe visual journalists or journalists, but we tell stories with cameras and we're all very much involved in productions in different ways than in the traditional production environment. Like the traditional production environment might be like producer, director, cinematographer, editor, and everybody has a lane they kind of stay in. The reason why our team is different is because we actually kind of can drive in all of the lanes and sometimes we do. So there's plenty of stories where we're actually the lead writer or the lead producer and we're shooting it on other stories a producer who doesn't have the skill set to shoot will go shoot for them. And that's one way. And then the other thing is just to look at the reality of the video environment, the online video environment, both of the world, but also in our little world of the New York Times has changed so much in my time at the Times. A lot of our videos don't have shooting now. I would say the amount of footage we use that's either user-generated content or security cam or mapping or satellite or open source forms of visual information or graphics or animation, we are pretty far away from the traditional broadcast setup 
or even wire setup where the primary medium is video. Like in the video department, only a portion of our things are actually filmed anymore. Gotcha. So your team, when the filming is required, they can also do that. Yeah. So when we have to shoot, that's when we get involved. And of course, there's lots of stuff we want to shoot, but like take George Floyd as an easy example. We have a team called Visual Investigations, and they specialize in open source reporting, which is looking for openly available information. And it's very investigative of a nature. And in this video, for example, we'd made a couple, but the one that has tens of millions of views, this details the 10 minutes in which this man was murdered. And we piece that together from many different people's cell phones, from security cams. And so we can give people a real TikTok, second to second TikTok of a world changing event and have that footage available to us immediately before we even think about deploying people, let alone getting the footage back and editing it. So the game has really changed in how we deploy our storytelling techniques. Like how do we cover breaking news? What is the appropriate way? And we're not set up like a broadcast network or a wire service where when something happens anywhere in the world, we have a person waiting to go there. Like we do have some people waiting to shoot at all moments, but it's not nearly as robust as a wire service or a broadcast network. So sometimes I think we found the best way to cover a story is with the information that's already there. And people just want to see it for themselves. And it can be very impactful. You know, like if we go out and shoot something, there's a lot of considerations on style and creativity. Like, do we want this to be super smooth and sexy? Should it be handheld and verte in nature? And once you're in that cell phone world, people witnessing something and you're in that world, it's very real. And very rarely can we be as real as that. Our presence there alone changes things. Like, what if there was a cameraman filming those cops arresting George Floyd? Would the same thing have happened? I don't know. Maybe they would have treated him differently. Maybe they would have known they're being filmed in a different way than, of course, I can make the counter argument that a lot of cops have body cam cams on and that doesn't stop them. Right. But the reality is that cell phone footage is so raw and so real and everybody can relate to it because they've taken a picture just like that, a shaky video with their cell phone. And so there's a real power to that, to harness that with our storytelling prowess or skills um, and use that stuff. It's, it's the same reason why like paranormal activity three is cool. Um, it's like, <laughs> it, it, it feels real. Right. Yeah. No, I've seen a lot of the visual investigation stuff. I know Evan Hill who works on that team. He, we went to college together. He's from Wisconsin too. So I don't know if he worked on that George Floyd one, but I've seen it and it's, yeah, it's pretty compelling. How big of a boss are you? Like how many people report to you just so I have some... I am a small boss. Um, (laughs) My team is uh, four people, including myself, but then I manage the freelancers. So that's actually a significant part of my job, especially because the staffers, like one of my big goals has to do with like style and aesthetic and managing branding across the team. So we have our visual investigations team, we have a field team, we have a shows team. How do I make all of that look like it's coming from the same place? And then add in cinematographers, you know, freelance video journalists all around the world who have some of them have no idea what we're doing. Others know very much what we're doing, but like the thought that goes into some of this stuff, because what we want to do is have impact, right? Like that's, that's the goal. How do we create the most impactful videos? How do we make the most compelling videos that will move people to action? So trying to create audience 
And we know that if we need audience to do that, we need kind of branding. We need people to recognize our videos as New York Times videos and want to watch them because of that and see it and recognize it immediately. And so I'm trying to, on a given week, I have my team, but then if I have 10 freelancers working for me, I'm also responsible not only for how they're using their cameras, both technically and philosophically and hopefully ethically, journalistically, ethically, but also Mm. their safety. If a freelancer comes on to cover a protest in Portland, we're responsible for their safety. So that means understanding the situation in which they're shooting. How dangerous is it? Do they have HEFAT training? Do they have a gas mask? Do they have a helmet on? Do they have goggles? They don't? Okay, how do we get it to them overnight? And it's a small team, but then my greater responsibility beyond freelancers is, I hate this term, but I'm going to say it, is sideways management is that I have to integrate with all these other teams that we're shooting for, but to make sure that we're kind of all working towards the same goal in terms of stylistic and journalistic unity. Right. Sounds like you've got a lot to do. The actual toughest part, to be honest, is like the sideways management nature of my job. And like, just to give you an example, we were doing like an interactive in Houston a few weeks ago at a hospital. And this was like right when Texas was getting hit. And so I had one of my staff members in the hospital there for three weeks So we were making an interactive and the lead reporter was Sherry Fink, who's like this monster in a good way, you know, of of health reporting. And she's a former doctor turned journalist. And she's been covering the story from like ground zero level, probably more than anybody else I know. And we have to coordinate with her because our cinematographer is going to get paired in this case with her. And then there's a photographer. So there's someone from the photo desk or someone from the science desk or someone from the health desk. Then there's graphics because it's interactive. And then once there's like five desks involved, our desk alone, there's like an EP and an SP and myself managing the project. And then there's the masthead who has oversight. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, there's like 15 people or 20 people actually managing these three people (laughs) on the ground. And then you're talking about, okay, well, there actually is a print component. So when is it getting printed? How much time do we need to create the news design and interactive portions of this? So there's like a tremendous amount of coordination around all of those people. And then to like, do all of those people know what the story is? Do we all have the same goal? Do we all think we have the same notion of what the best story to tell is here? And sometimes the answer is yes. And many times the answer is we have different ideas. Right. Yeah. No, <laughs> I know a bit about what that's about with our like photo and video staff and having different ideas sometimes. I was just going to say, yeah, I feel like I knew most of your bio, but like it somehow didn't all add up to the age you were. I knew you had worked right. for a little bit for a paper in Vermont and then had been in Beijing, but I didn't know about the whole Tulane traveling around, moving to the, all those different countries. My question is, you said you took pictures the whole way. I mean, what did you do with most of them? Or was it just purely for personal enjoyment and most of them weren't for any purpose? So at the time when I was taking them, I certainly... At certain points in that period, was trying to monetize. I mean, like, how do I get paid for this? And sometimes I would have success. But what success meant for like a 21-year-old kid with a camera and no degree who didn't know anything about the photography industry was like 50 bucks, maybe 150. But so- selling to who? Journalistic outlets or other stuff? Like you could be Any, shooting anybody with, for all I know. <laughs> anybody, anybody with money. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I could tell you all of the weird gigs, everything from shooting weddings. I did a lot of weddings, especially in college. I did a, some commercial stuff. I did a lot of food, shooting food for restaurant menus. I did some winery stuff, baby stuff, like, you know, especially when I was really poor and traveling. You know, like I barely had money. Like I had to supplement. I was working in restaurants. That's how I was actually making money. 
back then. And so anybody who would give me money, I had no problem working for them back then. It was good experience. And I guess if I think back on it, I have like a fairly wide scope of experience with like visuals at this point from the commercial side to the straight verte or documentary side. Like I've landed in this kind of newspaper world, newspaper video world. So there's like a big part of the story is is yet to come because we have to trans, this was all still photography back then. Right. And so I didn't move into video until 2009 or 10. So there's like a 10 year period where I was like total stills, maybe a little bit more than 10 years. So I think though I do have all of those photos that I took back then and some of them I would put into, you know, contests and stuff. I won a few. I guess early on I would use them in my portfolio. I remember thinking, oh, if this photo editor sees that I've been a lot of different places, it will make me look like I have a lot of experience. Right. <laughs> Which isn't totally untrue, but it's not. It's definitely as someone now who views a lot of portfolios, geography does not equal experience. So... <laughs> But so they, yeah, live where, hard, they live on hard drives, I guess, is the answer. <laughs> they're, they're, on, <laughs> they're on big old hard drives. And the only other thing I was going to say is just I remember it must have been the time when you were transitioning to the Times because at that point you could still accept equipment from like brands and oh, yeah. stuff. Uh-huh. And I just remember I was like, I'm going to Tibet. And you just like lent me a camera. You just like, I remember your room. It had just equipment all over and you just like hand it to me. And I take it and I like forget to return the charger ever. And you just could not have cared less. It was like, you were just like, so awash in equipment. Um, I remember that made an impression on me. Yeah. It's gotten worse except for now. I, it's not my money. So (laughs) I have a tremendous amount of equipment that is not my property, but that the New York times allows me to manage, which is quite nice. Right. So yeah, then the next section, I normally talk about a couple of stories. So I'll start with uh, the first question was a story that got away. If there's a story you had always wanted to do, or maybe you wanted to do at some point in your career, and you weren't able to do it for whatever reason, like the trip went horribly wrong, like you couldn't get sources to talk to you. I don't I know. Mean, I I have so many of those Especially on the idea side, like one of my favorite things to do is to try to push form and like what's expected of like, what do you expect to see? Like I love surprising people and trying to do things differently to an extent. And so like, I usually have multiple Google docs open at any time that say like Jonah's thinking doc or brainstorming or Jonah's bad ideas. And there's just like tons of stuff on there. Like I'm just like, I would say two to three times a day writing some idea down that I like and that I probably won't pursue, but one out of a hundred I do. And that's the story that, that you see. But I do like a tremendous amount of weird brainstorming. So it's a little bit hard to say what the one that's gotten away. I've definitely done stories where I've had to kill the story mid reporting because something didn't check out or for whatever reason. The one that comes to mind recently, which I really wanted to do, and this sounds totally ridiculous, but I wanted to go to North Korea and I wanted to give it like a Peter in the Wolf treatment. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this play, you know, like the do, 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 like I want uh, the cartoon version as a kid. Yeah. I remember seeing a few times. Right. And like, I, so, and the reason why this came up is I, I was going to North Korea and we were like, what can we do in North Korea? If you look at the North Korea coverage, there's like two types of stories. There's the wacky North Korea stories and there's the death and destruction North Korea story. And I wanted to find something that was like a little bit highlighting the absurdity of it, but also showing the seriousness of it. And I didn't want to fall into either of those categories. And I was going with Nick Kristoff 
and a friend of mine, Adam Alec, and somebody from the Ed Board who was coming too. And anyway, I had this whole plan where I was like, okay, so the foreign ministry is going to be the wolf, and this person's going to be. And like, I had like this whole plan mapped out of which characters were going to be represented by which musical things. And this was right after Otto Wambier died. Um, oh. And it was actually a super, super tense trip. Otto Wambier died, and then Trump got upstage at the United Nations. And this was like that famous speech where he said, I can see it in my, my, my memory, where he says, we will totally destroy North Korea. And the next day we landed in Pyongyang. <laughs> it was like a totally frightening time to show up when he had just threatened their country with force. And at the same time, the propaganda machine was working overtime in North Korea. And so was that the appropriate time to do a Peter and the Wolf story? Probably not. Um, <laughs> there's like so many gatekeepers of, of different things at the times to get ideas through. And I was really happy with what we produced, actually. We made this, it's a fairly sizable doc. It's probably like a 25-minute video that I think does things that, that's a little bit different than other videos. But it was a terrifying trip. There was a couple times where they got mad at me and, like, sequestered me <laughs> away from my colleagues and took away my phone. And it was a little bit like, ah. But I didn't do the Peter and the Wolf thing. And I've thought about that since. If, I think that one would have a long shelf life on the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing idea. I mean, if you can hit on a better time. Because... Yeah, I think that tone works a lot of the time. I mean, obviously you said you don't want to be one or the other, but as long as we're not going to like annihilate each other, I think any other time it might work. Right. Um, and at that moment in time, like that was why we were there actually. Like we just wanted to go there to ask them if nuclear war is inevitable. There was like a couple of months there where there was these anti-America parades every day and that so much propaganda coming out about Otto Wambier and about Trump. They were using his actual quotes. They didn't even have to like make shit up. And they were terrifying their population with his rhetoric. So nationalism was crazy. And in the United States, too, you know, there was a lot of testing going on. So everyone was super tense at that moment in time. But we're still right. here. And now, yeah, it seems like ancient history already, at least to me. Like, how many more things have happened since then? Yeah, um, wow. At Reuters, I always look at Bloomberg. Bloomberg's our competitor. Do you look at, like, the Post a lot? Or who are you looking to be like, what are, the, what are those guys over there doing? So I don't look at the post that much. I do in terms of what they're doing with interactives. The journal, I'm not super... Like, in terms of the competitiveness, like, it's important to, like, understand what your competitors are doing. I look at Vox. I look at Vice. I look at TV, actually, more than anything else. Like, I'm pretty inspired by the doc world and where that meets the news world. So, like, I do these interactives, but I also work in this short-form documentary world. And there's things from the documentary world that, that we're still not doing quite well enough. But when I view our competition at this point, I'm like, we should be as good as HBO. We should be as good as Netflix. And in some cases now, we, these collaborations are starting to happen. You know, like, we do have, like, we have a doc from the Times Video Department that went on Netflix a couple months ago. So, like, we're starting to make our way there, which is, like, a big step from where we started in digital video 15 years ago. And, you know, I see our biggest competition now as being these like, super well-made docs. And what does the short-form version of that look like? You know, the 8- to 20-minute version. And how can we, with much smaller budgets and much smaller staffs, get there and compete with those people? So, I think that's the thing. Like, my competition and the things I look for for inspiration are actually often feature docs. And a lot cool. of those are, in, I wouldn't call them indie docs, but they're all one-offs. <laughs> right, right. What's the Times one that went on Netflix, just out of curiosity? Uh, Soldier, Father, Son. 
And it's by Leslie Davis, and it's about a soldier who goes to war, and she followed him for just like a decade of his life. And it's a heartbreaking story. Uh, wow. But it's a, it's a beautiful doc. And that's the thing. Like, this is one of our challenges. Like, sometimes we have in the video department or all over the times, we have these personal projects that are going on for years sometimes. And what is the best venue for people to see that and to access it? And the correct answer is not always the New York Times. Um, like, we are a subscription business and we are pushing people to that. But we also recognize that there are alternative revenue streams with the platforms and clearly with video. Last year, we had our first foray with a new TV show called The Weekly, which is now transformed into a different type of show, but it's on Hulu and FX. So the Times infrastructure is really just growing in a lot of different ways in terms of where you can find Times or Timesian content. Wow. And I, sus I suspect you'll see more of that in the future. A lot more, actually. Is Twitter important to you? Yes. And in light of what you know about social media, do you have any conflicted feelings about that? A little bit, but less so because my problem with social media is if I get stuck doom scrolling, right? Like that's the word of the year here. Like I don't have a problem going to seek out information. I think that's great. I think that's powerful. But if you're sitting there, I think Facebook is much worse for this, but like you're just scrolling and you're not really looking for stuff. You don't really care. I think that's a waste of time be better off reading a science fiction novel or whatever book you want to read, whatever, go, go outside with your dog. But in terms of Twitter, because you can curate it so highly, like I have lists full of journalists that I've worked with. I have lists for China. I have lists for tech and ethics in these like highly specific Twitter feeds that I read. And that puts me all over the space in terms of understanding and taking in information. And, you know, I think especially for people who start getting too embedded into a news organization, I don't know if that's a thing too embedded, but like I read the New York Times daily and sometimes it's good to have a device to get me out of it. So I'm not only reading that and Twitter is good for that. So I don't think I waste that much time on it. I feel like I go to it. I can't tell you how many times in a day, but like throughout the day on and off, but it's not for long periods of time. Facebook, I think I feel differently about. Yeah. Do you use Facebook? I do. I don't post much personal stuff. I feel compelled to have a profile for professional reasons. I feel it necessary as a promotional device. I also think it's necessary for research. I mean, I use it all of the time for research. But that being said, the algorithmic side of Facebook feels more nefarious than Twitter or Google. I think part of that is because it's more in front of you, actually. I don't think it's really fair. In Facebook world, the nefariousness is very much right in front of you, whereas in Google, it's happening kind of behind the scenes more. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say about Twitter is I feel like I only actually figured it out recently and now <laughs> I have like very curated lists and I feel like I get a lot out of it because I don't know, I've calibrated it correctly for myself now, but I've been on Twitter since I first went to China in like 2007, 2008 and I only figured it out now. <laughs> um, I feel kind of like an right, idiot. Yeah. Um, well, but it, it's just like, how do you know you have to consume so much from the fire hose at least to get to the point to know like who you should follow and who like how to calibrate it, I guess. That's right. It, t it, t it takes some time. It takes some work. If you just go to like the Twitter's website, like twitter.com, like that's pretty worthless to me. You know, I only look at Twitter through TweetDeck and especially as it relates to what you're covering. And it's not that I'm like GA necessarily, like general assignment reporter or anything like that, but like I cover a wide variety of things. And so like, for example, like a couple weeks ago, I put out a piece about kind of like biodiversity and, and the nature of pandemics and the fact that they're happening more frequently now than they used to. And one of my subjects, this guy, Peter Dasak, 
I have a Twitter column just for him when he's mentioned because he's like the subject of lots of conspiracy theories. And sometime <laughs> during the reporting of this process, someone tweeted a clip of him, which ended up being totally instrumental to my reporting. And it was a clip of him from 60 Minutes in 2001 where he's on a boat in Southeast Asia and they're like, it's very TV-esque. And the reporter asks him, what's your biggest fear? And he says, my biggest fear is that a SARS-like virus is going to spread across the earth. We're not going to notice. It's going to be out of control. It's going to spread from person to person. And it's going to wipe out hundreds of thousands of people. And he said it in 2001. And I had an interview with this guy and I'm like, oh my God, this is great. I can actually write to this and I fared used to it. But it turned the character, who was just like an interview, into a central character. And this was a documentary that was made from my attic here. <laughs> so it's very interview heavy. And most of it's stock of mine from, you know, years past. But that device and that curation led me to find this. Like, it was like a break in the story, essentially. Wow, that's cool. That's funny that you set up just for one guy. But that's a good use of Twitter. Oh, it's not uh, just one guy. He was one of the guys. So I should say there, there's other ways for other people too. Uh, that okay. happen to be in my, my crosshairs. Gotcha. What do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Huh. I guess I would say creativity and framing. I really like to have high impact visuals and I want them to be not what people are expecting. I really like, I think I have a tendency to want to surprise people to get people's attention and to raise a red flag. Like that's like a kind of pastime of mine at this point. What is the problem and how do I tell people with a megaphone, even if it's something they think they know. And so this waving the red flag metaphor of, Hey, everybody stop for a second, pay attention to this. This is important. I think I have, I don't want to say I've excelled at that, but I enjoy it. I enjoy if I find something that people aren't talking about in these undercover topics and really trying to highlight them as loud as I can. Yeah, that's a good one. That makes sense to me. 